2: Hello, I'm Philip Coggan, the Economist's Bartleby columnist, and this is Money Talks on Economist Radio. Coming up on today's show, the rise of the compliance
3: officer. They have 30-something thousand people in all of these areas. Now, that's enough to fill about two-thirds to three-quarters of the seats in the stadium of
2: the Mets baseball team. I speak to Caroline criado Perez about her new book, Invisible Women.
0: We don't know about safety for women in male-dominated industries. When they were working in them, their data was discounted from the analysis.
2: And the Avengers conquer all, especially at the box office.
1: A decade ago, China took in 900 million at the box office in a whole year. Endgame has just done more than one third of that in a matter of days.
2: First, since a financial crash 10 years ago, one particular job has mushroomed in banks. To the traders, they're the people who kill their fun by stopping them from taking risks. Who are these mysterious people? Compliance officers, the people who are now central characters in finance. They don't generate any revenue themselves, but there are a lot more of them. Matthew Valencia, our Deputy Business Affairs Editor, has been checking up on the checkeruppers. Matthew, why has there been such a surge in growth for these jobs? Well, there's been a particular
3: surge since the the global financial crisis. It actually goes back further than that to, um, I would say, the Patriot Act after 9-11, the September 11th attacks, when America got very worried about terrorist financing. So this is largely to do with things like money laundering, sanctions busting, terrorism financing and other financial crimes. And that's a big part of it. With that surge in enforcement has come a surge in numbers of compliance people at the big banks. Can you put some numbers on it? It's very difficult to sort of work out overall numbers because banks don't have to disclose this, but certain banks do. So it's possible to sort of get a a sense of it. And the sense one gets, and also talking to people in the industry, is that whereas before the crisis you were talking probably about 5% of the total staff at big banks worked in compliance and control in internal audit in all of those sort of areas where you were essentially doing sort of internal policing legal as well it's gone up from around five percent to ten maybe in some banks fifteen percent in some of the big banks you're talking tens of thousands of people who who are in this area so if you look at Citigroup, for example they have 30 something thousand people in all of these areas now that's enough to fill about two thirds to three quarters of the seats in city field in new york which is the stadium of the mets baseball team so that gives you a sense of just how many people
2: are in this area do you think It may have peaked because the Trump administration is not so keen on regulation as the Obama administration before it. And of course, it's possible that automation may replace some of the numbers of these staffs.
3: That's right. I mean, so we have certain trends that suggest a peak or a tailing off. One is, as you say, the Trump administration and its sort of anti-regulation agenda or the aim to sort of cut red tape. However, we haven't actually seen a great deal of that. And banks say that, you know, there's still a huge number of regulations to deal with. So we've seen a number of large banks that have kind of gone gangbusters in hiring in compliance in the past five or 10 years. And some of those like uh, BNP, uh, HSBC, both of which, by the way, were fined very heavily for transgressions involving things like money laundering and sanctions they've hired many many people and they've reached a point where they say well we're now in a sort of stabilization phase or we've peaked in terms of numbers of people and we'll sort of catch our breath and see where we are and then of course as you mentioned you have this trend towards using more technology so the hope over the longer term at some of the big banks is that they can reduce the numbers of people that they have to pay for
2: and um, use clever algorithms instead but you know that's at a very early stage Is it more glamorous to be a compliance officer these days? Might it be the way even that some executives make it to the top of one of the big banks?
3: Well, you may not make it all the way to the top, but you're paid better than you were five or ten years ago. You're not paid as much as the rainmakers at banks, but um, chief compliance officers can sort of hit seven figures in terms of salary. Their teams are, are paid better. The compliance market has been sort of very hot in recent years. And, you know, the clout of compliance officers, compliance teams is greater than it ever has been chief compliance officers who used to be way back when were sort of part of the the risk or the legal departments you know they now have their own independent departments some of them for instance at hsbc will report directly to the chief executive of the bank and we'll also have a direct line to the board uh, via some of the subcommittees. And it's interesting, at some of the banks, again, HSBC is an example, compliance and control issues make up, in terms of the, the sort of metrics by which the the overall pay of the chief executive and the CFO, the chief financial officer, are worked out, compliance is the biggest single factor. So, you know, there really has been a, a sea change.
2: Thank you very much, Matthew. Thank you.
1: Next, the use of
2: data is constantly changing the way we live our lives, mostly for the better. But in many areas, the analysis is deeply flawed. In her new book, Invisible Women, Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men, Caroline Criado-Perez reveals that often the data excludes women, be it in health and safety, product design or drug creation. I asked her to explain why, starting with the example of seatbelts.
0: Well basically everything in cars, the entirety of car safety is designed or has been designed historically around a car crash test dummy that is based on the 50th percentile male and obviously that is too tall and too heavy and the result of this design is that in all sorts of ways cars are basically much less safe for women than they are for men. So for example women have to sit further forward than men do in order to reach the pedals and see over the dashboard but that puts them at much higher risk in a frontal collision. Seat belts haven't been designed to account for the female form, particularly for pregnant women, and fetal death from trauma, the number one cause of that is a car crash. The The result of all these things together, you know, things like the seat being too firm and everything like that, is that women are 47% more likely to be seriously injured, and I'm talking life-changing injuries here, if they're in a car crash, and 17% more likely to die than a man in the same car crash.
2: This leads naturally through to other ways in which Things are not designed for women in the workplace. So you mentioned protection equipment in construction sites Mm -hmm. and tools for for women who use them. Well, I mean,
0: basically, when it comes to women, personal protective equipment is a misnomer because most of the time it seems it doesn't actually protect women and in these sort of extreme cases can actually harm them, can be dangerous. You know, things like getting caught in machinery or posing a risk to them because uh, it's too big. So there are stories, for example, of women in the police force, where all too often body armour hasn't been designed to account for, for example, women's breasts. And women report having to get breast reductions, having to end up having physio because of the way that it sits on their body. One woman actually was stabbed and killed because in order to use a hydraulic ram to open a door, she had to take her stab vest off. Um, And similarly, tools, you know, one of the big issues is basically female hand size and grip strength. Women's hands are on average smaller than men's hands and our grip strength is significantly weaker and the result is that a lot of tools simply just don't work for us. We can't use them properly and again that can be very dangerous if you're working in construction or all sorts of, of industries where safety is a concern.
2: And that leads to, I mean, the central theme of your book really is that women have just not been considered Mm -hmm. uh, in so many ways and not even studied. And I think one of the most fascinating areas for future development perhaps is what you say about safety in the way that, you know, clearly, for example, minors, the effect of dust in their lungs has long been studied. There? But for women working with chemicals, those studies have not been done.
0: Well, you know, even when women were working in male-dominated industries, although we know everything about really safety in male-dominated industries, we don't know about safety for women in male dominated industries. So even if they when they were working in them, their data was discounted from the analysis as confounding factor. It wasn't sort of disaggregated off and let's look at how women are affected. They just didn't want to use it. And yeah, when it comes to female dominated occupations, we just don't, haven't really done the research at all. So, for example, we know all about safe lifting levels in construction, but we don't know anything about it for cleaners, for example. And cleaners can lift as much as a construction worker in a single shift. And even though a you know, I think it was about a decade ago, a researcher pointed out we hadn't really looked at the biomechanics of lifting together with with breast tissues and how that might interact with it. And we still not done anything on that. So occupational health is absolutely a, a huge area. And for a lot of these diseases, which are sort of long latency diseases, men tend to be more likely to die as a result of a fatality in the workplace. But actually the most common way of being killed by your job is some kind of long latency disease, being exposed to chemicals, being exposed to dust. And the, the issue is that because the kinds of jobs that women... Are more likely to do like care work, like cleaning, like, for example, working in a nail bar, are seen sort of as frivolous things that women do anyway. It's not seen as this really important, serious thing that we should be looking into, not like an important, serious job like construction or mining, but actually they can be exposed to extremely harmful chemicals. In nail bars, for example, women can be exposed to the dust from acrylic nails, they can be exposed to all sorts of extremely volatile chemicals from the acetones and the nail polishes and the shellacs and the removal is And we've just basically done no testing on these chemicals. We've done no testing on how they interact together. And when we have tested them, it hasn't been on women. And that's a problem because women, for example, have more fat in their bodies where these chemicals can accumulate. They tend to have thinner skin. And basically, there's just this huge area that we just don't know about. The only thing we do know is when some researchers in Canada looked into why all these women in a certain area were turning up at the women's health centers with really similar problems ranging from dermatitis to infertility. And it turned out they all worked in nail bars. And nail bars are just totally unregulated. There's no ventilation regulation. There's no regulation about whether they can have endocrine-disrupting chemicals in their nail polishes. And it, you know, seems as if they do. So it's basically a kind of wild west out there for women's work. And apart
2: from the dangers that women face at work to their long-term health, they also face different standards of judging their behaviour. So behaviour that is accepted in males is um, often criticised in women in terms of when it comes to performance measurement, for example.
0: Well, there was a really fascinating study looking at how students evaluated their professors and whether that was affected by the sex of the professor. And the way they did it was that they had the exact same delivery, but one professor was presented as as if they were male and one professor as if they were female. It was the same professor the whole time. And they actually thought that the female professor handed back marking later, even though this is the same person, so they weren't doing that. And they just generally gave them much lower marks and were much more likely to call them things like bossy and strident, whereas men are authoritative. And there's also a much lower bar for men to be seen as caring and generous and nice, like things that for women are just expected. For men are seen as above and beyond. And then, of course, even when it comes to things like promoting diversity, again, particularly white men, if they are promoting diversity in when they're in a position of leadership, that's seen as a really great thing. What a great guy! If a woman does it, or uh, a person from an ethnic minority background does it, that's seen as you know not playing fair and you know promoting women who don't deserve it.
2: Mm. So it's a kind of catch twenty two if you're. Authoritative, you're bossy, and if you're caring, you're not professional. Caroline, thank you very much. Her book is Invisible Women, Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. Thank you. Thank you. Finally, this weekend saw the release of Avengers Endgame, a superhero film produced by the Walt Disney Company. I know I said no more surprises, but I was
1: really hoping to pull off one last one. The world
2: has changed. None of us can go back. Don't worry, you won't find any spoilers here, especially as I'm still waiting to see it. But I'm expecting some CGI effects and lots of explosions. It has already become the first motion picture to hit the billion-dollar mark in its opening weekend. Is this the start of Disney's battle against its rival Netflix, our very own superhero Gardy Epstein, the Economist media editor, Special Power, Acute Perception, is here to talk about it. Gardy, this is done pretty brilliantly all around the world, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's smashing records everywhere, Phil. And it's not just breaking records in almost every market. It's the way that it's doing it. You know, it's made $1.2 billion in five days. That is almost twice as much as the previous record holder for, you know, a long opening and that was Infinity War, the predecessor movie to Endgame. It has smashed the international record, which was set by the fate of the Furious, which was just four hundred and forty three million. It's now made eight hundred and fifty-nine million as of the time we're talking through Sunday, once again in just about five days. And in the US, it made three hundred and fifty million for the opening weekend which is almost $100 million more than the, the previous record holder, which, once again, was the movie that came before this one, Avengers Infinity War. And in China, it made $330 million. This just kind of gives you a sense, also, of just the growth of the China market, too. A decade ago, China took in $900 million, or a little bit more than that, at the box office in a whole year. Endgame has just done more than one-third of that in a matter of days. It's kind of mind-boggling. And that just tells you the power of the intellectual property Disney has, that it has built these titles uh, from Marvel into a global phenomenon. So this is quite a weapon against Netflix, isn't it? Because some Marvel shows
2: were on Netflix and have, have been taken off, like Daredevil, for example.
1: That's right. And those Marvel shows that were on Netflix are being discontinued. And they weren't really tied in. They weren't overseen by Kevin Feige, who runs Marvel Studios for Disney. They weren't part of the same world, really. I mean, they were tangentially. You'd see some sort of mentions, but they weren't really tied together. And certainly in the the eyes of fans, uh, they weren't the same universe, as it were. And now they will be. And I think this is going to be quite a good bit of synergy for Disney, which, of course, does a very good job of that. And it definitely will pay off the investment in Marvel Studios. They bought Marvel uh, for $4 billion a decade ago. And at the time, people thought that was a bit of a high price. Investors certainly didn't like it, uh, partly because Marvel wasn't perceived to still have ownership of the uh, write the movie rights to the important franchises, uh, like X Men, for instance, or Spider Man. But they had this guy Iron Man, played by Robert Downey Jr., who'd already been a hit, and they had the Avengers, which turned into the biggest business that movies have ever seen.
2: Will Disney use this same tactic for some of the other franchises, like Star Wars, for example, move them onto
1: TV formats? That's absolutely what they're doing. So you have, first of all, you have Star Wars 9, the end of the third trilogy of the original sort of Star Wars story arc coming out at the end of this year, The Rise of Skywalker. That will be a big hit as well. And you have live-action and animated Star Wars TV shows coming to the new Disney Plus streaming service. One of the first ones called The Mandalorian, I saw a couple of clips from at uh, Disney's Investor Day, a few weeks back, and it looks, at least, you know, you didn't get to see any story, but it looked impressive. It wowed all the kind of investor analysts that were in the room for what that's worth, and that will be uh, available right at the launch of Disney Plus near the end of this year. This is a big part of their strategy, is to coordinate now releases for streaming on, you know, TV, as it were, with what's going on on the big screen, on the silver screen, and I think they, they hope to set... Continue setting records in the movie theater, but also drive, maybe even more importantly, people to subscribe to Disney Plus. Just like Netflix has amassed, you know, 140 million subscribers globally. They want to get that kind of business for Disney Plus and get monthly subscription revenue from fans all around the world.
2: That's great, not at all goofy. Thank you very much, Gardy. Thanks, Phil. And that's all for this week's Money Talks. Thanks for listening, and please rate us on iTunes. It really does make a difference. I'm Philip Coggan. In London, this is The Economist.